Hi, you're listening to Poopleheads, the Deadwood podcast at MovieFail. My name's Soren Howe, and I'm here with Josh Rosenfield. And this is the inaugural, uh, the inaugural attempt at covering the behemoth that is Deadwood, um, an HBO series from, uh, I don't know, when did it start airing? 2002? I think 2004. 2004? I think that's when it stopped. I think I... Or am I wrong? I think I, I was looking at the oh, episode no, right. a second ago. 2004? I'm pretty sure it's... Yeah. All right, sorry, I had the, my timeline's a little messed up. It did overlap a little bit with The Sopranos, and I think maybe with Rome. That, that was that era of, of shows. Um, so, Yeah, The Sopranos, definitely. Um, I think it ended like a year before The Sopranos. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was you know, in the vicinity. Different different era of yeah. HBO's um, programming. Um, so just <laughs> the silver to, age of television. The silver age, <laughs> um, or arguably, depending on how you, you know, how you feel about. The I mean, golden I'm, age. I'm, I'm, yeah, I quarrel with just the term golden age in general. So, well, I think it's <laughs> been. I think in the, you know, the 2000s, the 2010s. I, I think it's been overall definitely a great period for television. Um, I don't know that every example is you know up to my personal. <laughs> uh, standards, but you know, but I definitely think uh, for for me, Deadwood was always up there. So, just to preface this podcast, uh, I've seen Deadwood uh, from beginning to end, uh, and I, I'm, I'm a big fan. But this was many years ago, so I just remember thinking it was fantastic. Um, I didn't really evaluate it in sort of any sort of critical sense. I just watched it um, way back when, and uh, so that'll be interesting for me to look at it from that perspective and to look at it from sort of the technical end of things. Uh, and Josh, uh, what's your experience with Deadwood? Uh, there is no experience with Deadwood <laughs> because I have not seen. Um, well, now I've seen exactly one hour of Deadwood. Previous okay, well, to <laughs> this afternoon, I had seen zero frames of Deadwood. Um, if you listen to our Game of Thrones podcast, Stark Contrast, you'll notice a uh, role reversal yeah. in that, <laughs> um, where I was the one who who knew everything and and Soren knew nothing. Uh, now Soren knows everything, and I know nothing. And he is already—he uh, <laughs> already says that I've um, made some comment that's going to have uh, ironic ramifications or something. I guess I don't even want to go back and look. At that sort of shit, but <laughs> it's nothing—it's nothing quite like I'm that. Excited to find out. It's not as bad as like, <laughs> you know, at wishing. It's not. I'll, I'll say this about Deadwood. It's not not to to ruin anything. About like, generally about the show, but it's not like Game of Thrones where you're just constantly expecting people to die. But you know, there are arcs. There are arcs. I won't. I won't get into it. Um, <laughs> and what's funny is, like I said, I really only remember broad. Like I know characters who come and go, and and general arcs of characters. But I don't. It's been a while since I've watched, so I don't like the finer details of the plot and how things unfold completely. It's like I'm watching it again for the first time, which is very cool, and also probably a good thing, so I can really evaluate what's going on. Um, it's also hard, you know, when you rewatch something to not think, "Oh, I know where that's going," or "I know what this is," you know, in the context of. Or it's very interesting. So, in any case, so the first episode of Deadwood is called Deadwood. Uh, it's not even called Welcome to Deadwood, as I thought it was. It is just Deadwood. Um, so I'd love to get your perspective now that you've you've finally seen an episode of the show, just overall. Um, yeah, no, I enjoyed this episode, yep. I gotta say, it's, um, I, it's definitely, it's a bit different if than we Game weren't doing this podcast, <laughs> I mean, it, well, <laughs> you, you know, that's saying something, um, <laughs> but if we were watching this, if I was watching this and, you know, not, not to take part in a podcast about it, um, 
I would probably I would probably give it another episode or two. Yeah. Um it doesn't have the kind of and maybe this is just be, you know being a product of its time. It doesn't have a lot of shows now um they real and you know uh, this is something that's obviously been the case forever, but I think <laughs> it is truer now than ever. Um uh pilots are really they kind of have to have a thing that hooks mm-hmm. you like a um the last scene of the for instance Game of Thrones pilot um I can't think of any other examples off the top of my head but you know what I mean The Flash the Flash does it constantly with stingers actually but you haven't seen the Flash so No but it, <laughs> um like um uh Lost whatever happened in the pilot of Lost some whatever crazy I don't remember specifically but some like thing happened crazy thing happened and it was like oh well, I got to see what happens next mm-hmm. Deadwood doesn't really have that mm-hmm. and I kind of appreciate that um and I, like i said maybe it is because it's a product of its time um which isn't that long ago but it feels weird saying that about 2004 <laughs> <laughs> but uh it, it i i appreciate taking a not leisurely pace i guess but a more it, it feels more deliberately paced mm. um than a lot of shows today which are kind of just like go 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 we gotta just rock it towards because otherwise we're going to lose your attention. Right, 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 right. Um, it, it's nice to see a show that's just like, you know, you. I get the impression that this show is saying, like, look, you can go along with us, you can not go along with us, but we're just going to, like, kind of trot along, and, you know, you, you can see where it where it takes you, uh, but we're not going to, like... Bait you into watching. Work extra hard to make sure that everyone watches this show. It doesn't seem like a show that's really... Um, committed to, like... And this is the benefit of being on HBO, right? Uh, it doesn't need to like grab the wide audience in a way that like a show on network TV or even you know regular. Cable well, it depends. Does. I mean, you say all that, and yet um, not to spoil anything, but Deadwood only runs for three seasons. So if you uh, you oh. know, <laughs> womp, womp. Um, it did eventually get canceled because it was an expensive show, and you know, um, I don't know that its oh, ratings were bad. Well, I'll just scroll down to yeah. Well, the the, ratings... the pilot premiered with. 5.79 million viewers, and that's like crazy huge. for 2004. It's huge. And then if that, you look just, into yeah. season, well, you don't. I don't want you to look because you'll probably just end up spoiling yourself. But, I don't want to look either. <laughs> um, but it drops just from season to season, which makes no sense because it just gets better and better. <laughs> but um, I think they had their very core audience, but I think people sort of fell off at some point. Um, maybe sometimes because the first season maintained around four million for most of it. Um, I don't know. I honestly, I can't understand it because as I was watching, I just needed to like. I started binging more and more at a time, and I just I couldn't I couldn't stop watching. And it was actually so it's weird to see it slow down in terms of you know viewers uh, because like I felt it was much slower in the beginning and picked up a lot more um, as the as the show went on. So it's just funny to me to. I'd like I've never looked at the numbers before, um, but in any case, yeah. So it doesn't do that. But what's funny is you mentioned the pilot of Game of Thrones, and not to well, you're not going to jump ahead or anything, but um, the fact that this person, this that the that the, the, the uh, Game of Thrones finale ends uh, with a kid getting pushed out a window, the sort of plot twist there is that the you know well we we find out a little bit later that Bran is alive and knows what happened or may may or may not know what happened and that's sort of a um, something that keeps you watching in Game of Thrones and in this we actually have the exact same situation where there's a kid who survives some sort of calamity and we're not sure what the kid knows or doesn't know and who they might implicate in uh, what happened so it's actually a very similar that's true plot. yeah that's a um, 
<laughs> Although I gotta say, be, you know, I um, I hope nobody comes to arrest me, but because HBO Go was being wonky, I did have to watch it on an illicit stream, um, that was a little blockier visual-wise. <gasps> so I could actually not tell until <laughs> they brought her to the doctor if the kid was alive or dead. Um, but I <laughs> if the doctor was getting involved. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, until assumed once yeah. they were knocking on the doctor's door that <laughs> there was probably still a chance. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's that's an interesting, an interesting comparison. But yeah, it's it's overall. I just immediately I hadn't thought of it at the time, obviously, but now I'm looking back and I'm going, oh, this is a kind of a similar, mm-hmm. little bit, little bit similar. But you know what it is though? It's um, like the difference is in the. It is is in the level of the stakes, right? Because I think Game of Thrones kind of I don't we we shouldn't talk about Game of Thrones too much, <laughs> but I think it's kind of still in our heads. It's going to no, take us really a little shouldn't. while to shake it. Probably, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, Game of Thrones kind of cheats in having in starting with you know following the major the most major players of this entire world mm. basically the most important people on the planet are the main characters of Game of Thrones, um, and Deadwood. Right. It's just you know it's just like the people in this town really so it while it is kind of it is a really similar setup but because you know you still don't really know who any of these people are you don't really know how you feel about anyone yet and really the only stakes are um i don't mean this to disparage the show the only stakes are to you know they're very personal they are probably at most mm-hmm. like the you know fate of the town itself because these are important figures in the town i guess or at least one of them so far but um and so, so you're looking at it narratively. To me, like the reason that the Game of Thrones, the first Game of Thrones episode, is a hook is because it just it ends when Bran gets pushed out the window. It just cuts as he's falling. Well, out. there's the cliffhanger element, the and there's also the element of like, wow, I can't believe this show is just gonna kill a kid in episode one. And then, of course, they walk it back. Right, right, right. Um, but yeah, I mean, Game of Thrones is also like it's a lot more salacious, I guess is the word, <laughs> right off the bat. Um, whereas <laughs> Deadwood, like, there's a there's a moment. Uh, I don't know how we'll structure these. We if we'll go through the episode or not, but when, yeah, I don't uh, know. When um, the bald Irish guy <laughs> is killed, um, <laughs> I couldn't believe. And but yeah, I love. Um, I can't wait to see how you name these characters because what's funny is this was me in the beginning of Game <laughs> of Thrones, and most people, and even still, you know, like that guy, the guy with the mustache, or like the guy with the, you know, it's the same yeah. thing. You know, it's very hard to keep. Well, that's the thing. There's a lot them. of named I, characters, and they all look the same. <laughs> They all look I right. the only real one, except for I guess um uh Trixie and what's and Jean, the woman who's you know, just by virtue of being the only two women on the show so far, um, they're distinctive. Bill Hickok is is distinctive. Who's 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 who? Jean oh Jane. Jane. Oh, is it Jane? Um okay. Clam- Jane is that yeah, Calamity okay. Jane. Alright, okay. Now that's okay. I think she's a Well, there's also uh Alma Garrett, oh, that's right. Who hasn't really yeah, had she any hasn't done... much? Hasn't okay, much of a yeah. role, but she's a. But um, yeah, the but only yeah, you're one right. who's it's... like um, I know Ian McShane because I know Ian McShane. I know um, John Hawks is in this. Right, of course. <laughs> and of course, you know the only character who right. I really know by name is uh, Bill Hickok because that's a person who's just you know famous from history, and also he has a more distinctive look than anyone right. else with the long hair and everything. So um, I got him right, nailed right, right. down. <laughs> so that's one. <laughs> You've got I'm him. I'm gonna work down. on everyone else. Yeah, it's it's right. It's and it's interesting because um, so one of the things that I, I find interesting about Deadwood and and I guess we'll see how this plays out. This is all just by memory. I don't really 
uh, I, I, I'm not going to stand by this necessarily as we move forward. Um, but uh, the show definitely tries something in the beginning where it sort of intro- introduces Deadwood by way of at least one character, which is probably necessary instead of just randomly being introduced to a lot of characters. But it doesn't really do much in that regard. You know, it starts with um, Seth uh, Bullock, uh, Timothy Oliphant's character, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, And it starts with him. And then, you know, he arrives in Deadwood basically immediately. And that's it. Like, he's your in on the town. And he is sort of, he does sort of feel like this main character. Um, it's sort of our our, um, our our proxy into this. Uh, but the cast is definitely much more ensemble. And I, one thing I'll say that's kind of funny is that, um, you know, these characters, a lot of, there is a lot of overlap. And it, it, there's, <laughs> it's even, what you said is even funnier. And I we can't even talk about it until later. I want to see if you even noticed. <laughs> but, um it's just so funny that you say that but i'll just say this a lot all of the side characters have arcs and plot like there's no real side characters everyone's part of the ensemble for sure um which is very interesting and the other thing that's you know makes it very different than game of thrones is game of thrones has like 20 characters per location and there's like a thousand locations and deadwood as you might guess from the name of the show uh it takes place entirely in this in this town so it you know, you quickly become accustomed to all the characters and the actors and, and the rest of them uh, because there's there's nowhere else to go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just by, by virtue of the single location, it, it becomes a lot easier to focus than it does in something like Game of Thrones, where I, half the time I'm still trying to remember the names of the characters, let alone, you know, who's playing them. <laughs> um, so yes, in any case. Um, but yeah, I think we can uh, we can go through So I, I don't know if we need to go this through this... We can go through the major beats. Uh, we don't have to go through this, you know, necessarily chronologically. But I think that there's major, major points here um, on just even just how it opens. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. What did you think of this opening scene? I've always been ambivalent about this opening scene. Um, it's certainly uh, it, it is a very, you know, <laughs> it, it's very clear. Like you say, uh, establishing Bullock as the main character. Uh, this is the it's the kind of scene that you use to open your show. Where you're like, okay, this is who the character is. It's it's a very you know it's like, I don't want to. I'm not gonna say screenwriting 101 because I'm not gonna. Um, dim- <laughs> I really don't want to diminish it like that. Uh, that's not fair. But it is a very like, like yeah, <laughs> that's how you. Right. This is the kind of thing you do if you want to get across the kind of person that this person is. Um, and it very clearly does. Right. I, I I was a little, um. It, well, I, okay, I'll say this. Uh, I think it says more about the scene. Ultimately, says more about just the world that he lives in than it does him himself. I think, um, I agree, because yeah. you know, it wasn't clear to me. <laughs> the guy, the prisoner, um, it wasn't super clear to me if he was aware that he was going to die because he seemed like pretty. Uh, <laughs> I would not have been. I would not have been as in such high spirits. If I knew that I was like probably going to be hanged the next day, um, so I think it—I I have to assume that he did know that that was the punishment for whatever crime he committed. Um, and I ultimately, that says more about the world—the the way that people treat death, the way that people treat their own deaths—as sort of like mm. is not, uh, if not expected. Well, I guess expected. It's it's a not maybe not, if not nihilistic, then just like. Uh, they have a greater sense of their own mortality than certainly people do today. 
you know, I think it's actually so. It's broad. I think it's a bit broader than that, or not broader. It's just, it's slightly different than that. So it's not really to me. I, I'm not. I'm not speaking for the show, but to me, the show has a lot of has a, it makes a very intentional point, and I think this is the running theme through the whole show, of authority and the law and civilization. And uh, and I think this is probably incorrect. I'm probably misremembering this, but I had heard some story about that Deadwood was supposed to be. I think what Deadwood was originally became Rome, or something like that, or it was or it was supposed to be like a a, a show about the like the founding of Rome. Uh, I, I that's why I heard something like that, uh, which may or may not be correct, but certainly the the show is predicated on, and we we we'll get this a little bit later with the reporter because he talks about this very overtly, but it is also just in the show I think an important point, and we see it very clearly here. Um, that the 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 people who are in Deadwood are there to clearly to escape, or to leave behind something, whatever it is, whatever reason they have for being there, um, and every character has a different reason. Some are good and some are bad and whatever, but it's all to live in this place that's beyond the reach of the law. Yeah, and so this opening sequence is this is the world that they're leaving. This is the world where you do something wrong and you're punished for it. And clearly Deadwood is not that place <laughs> at all, which is why actually he tries to make this deal. You know, if you can, if you're in a Deadwood to, you know, not be a marshal anymore anyway, we might as well both go to Deadwood, you know, and well, you know, who cares? Yeah. Right. Um, well, it's also interesting. But, and then I think it does say something about him that he, despite that, despite saying committing to going to Deadwood, he's still going to carry out his duty as far as, as long as he's, you know, maintaining this specific. Well, that's what that, I was going to say. That's what makes him such an interesting um, Western. I mean, I don't, I hesitate calling anyone a protagonist at this point, just because I don't know really where anyone <laughs> stands. Uh, but I think he's as close as we are right. going to get thus far. Um, you know, such a powerful trope in kind of the Western mythology is, the lawman who is just uh, with the single-minded commitment to justice and the law and upholding what's mm. right. Um, and we open right. with this character who, you know, because he's a marshal, because we see him in a, you know, sheriff's office or whatever with someone in with a prisoner, um, and we see him uphold the letter of the law in this first season, um, I think we expect something from him that I don't know that the show is good because I mean the very next thing he does is um, completely leave that all behind and go to a place where they very explicitly say there is no law, and he doesn't seem like he's there to. Right. It's not like he's riding into town to uh, to bring law and order to Deadwood. He's there just to be a merchant. Mm. Um, and you know maybe he I don't know maybe mm. he <laughs> you making a sound. <laughs> I, I, I maybe he. No, it's you're you're making great points. I, I mean maybe he will. I think that's. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, clearly, but clearly, though, he's not interested. It seems like, at least, he, that he's not interested in that sort of life anymore. Um, or he he seems to want to push into this, whatever, hardware store business. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, as soon as he gets the chance to go and deal with the situation, he immediately drops everything and goes and does it. That's true. So it's interesting. It's um, maybe he is more of a. Uh... Because that that is indicative of, of a different Western trope, which is the uh, the lawman who uh, you know committed to justice but doesn't let the law get in his way, uh, like you know, like the uh, <laughs> yeah. the renegade. It, it's and this is outside of westerns too. Um, um, what is it? Uh, lawful neutral is that the alignment that I'm thinking of? Lawful lawful neutral. Yeah, I mean, kind, yeah, I, mean sure, I don't want to yeah. you know. Um, I, I I enjoy no enjoy no alignment charts. I don't 
want to uh, you know assign everyone in this show to one as part of the podcast right. necessarily. But I think that's kind of what I'm what I'm thinking of is you know he seems like a guy who will mm. uh, who cares about what's right and who cares about doing what's right, but is not um, necessarily uh, you know beholden to any sort of um, higher standard to to get that done other than other than maybe his own um so it's it's curious to have a kind of a the archetype of the western sheriff uh displaced from the sheriff role and taken to a place where the sheriff has no power but he still right. feels the need to execute on some sort of uh moral imperative well and the other thing that's interesting is uh, well i mean it it's interesting when he challenges this guy. I guess the guy could have written off and they wouldn't have had to deal with him. Um, but it also sort of feels like a little bit self-defense. But what's interesting is his relationship with Bill Hick- yeah. Hickok, who also was a marshal. Yeah, that was and really interesting. he immediately takes to him because of that. That was especially yeah. – that, that's, that's another great example of uh, – this show seems to – you know, I don't know if the show is going to follow through on this necessarily, but I'm getting this impression of – really wanting to um, kind of, if not flip tropes on our head, then at least kind of draw us in based on our, our understanding of what we expect from certain characters and um, and not go forward with that at all. Uh, so when I hear Wild Bill Hickok, mm, yeah. I have an understanding of what that means, I think. You know, he's like, he's an outlaw. Um, exactly. That's what I assume. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know anything about it, I mean, but yeah, yeah I exactly. assume he was an outlaw. And it's, uh, so when you take this character and not only have him say that he used to be a marshal and then deliberately parallel him with this character who you have been brought to understand is a, you know, a kind of figure of justice. Um, And then of course have this great scene near the end of the episode when they both uh, shoot the, um, the uh, guy in the uh, tattered hat, I guess, Um, not his name where they, yeah, they both are, it's interesting to take a character who you only really know as an outlaw and then you bring along with that your understanding of the outlaw archetype and then to mm. make him into a person, you know, I don't know that Bill Hickok is a guy who cares necessarily about uh, justice in the same way that Bullock does, but clearly the, um, in this instance at least, clearly he does. He's not going to let this guy uh, escape um, the uh, ramifications of, of what he's done. Uh, but he, of course he will. Right. <laughs> he will just shoot him in the street if if that's what it comes to. Right. Well, I I think what's also interesting here that I um I, I find interesting about Bill Hickok is that this whole episode is a lot of him being very blasé and uninterested in what's going on. That is predominantly his role in this. I mean, episode. his his introduction. And it's not until his introduction is him like um like kind of just sleeping while a lot of stuff goes on around him. <laughs> right, exactly, and I think it's what's fascinating. He just doesn't seem to care that they're in traffic. Yeah. It's like it's tra- and I, by the way, I love that there's traffic in the frontier. <laughs> right, like that's that's amazing. Uh, like, wow, uh, it's literally there's nothing here. How are we in traffic? Um, you can't escape it. Uh, but so yeah, so he's just he's inter- he's uninterested in that. He doesn't want to listen to his his you know he he's not ter- he's not overly interested in what's going on he does take notice of uh seth when he comes in or or if, i guess he looks at saul when he comes in uh and that's that's general situation um but he doesn't he doesn't seem to pay much attention to anything except for like gambling sort of catches his attention and then this 
he immediately gets up and gets involved in this situation. Um, which, I don't know. I mean, maybe that calls back to what he left behind. You know, apparently he has a wife and, and I guess kids or something, you know, that he's that he's left behind or it's not really clear. Um, but, it, you know, he has he has more attachment to this than than uh, he lets on at first. And I think that that's it's interesting that that's what pulls him into it. So I, and I, I guess we're, it feels like we're meant to get the idea that whatever else Bill Hickok is, he's fundamentally a just or good person. I don't know. That's what it seems like, because they do take out this guy they seem to think is, you know, uh, lying about whatever happened to this family. Well, yeah, it's it's, um, it's it's in many ways a much more honest take on um, the kind of traditional Western setting than we usually get, because we, you know, the classic, yeah. well, the classic <laughs> Western is uh, kind of, while it'll present characters like, you know, the cowboy and the outlaw, and it'll there will be this implication of kind of um, moral grayness between them. Um, really, you can't you can't get more morally black and white than a John Wayne western, right? No, nope. uh, you really can't. Nope. So, no, you can't. <laughs> but but of course, in a you know in a set in a time period in a setting like the Wild West, um, stuff is never going to be that clear. It really can't be. Um, right. So I like I love that this show is really taking a very you know even in even modern westerns really that I've seen, and there are so few of them, um, but modern Westerns, they t- they even they don't tend to um, really honestly explore the moral ramifications of a place in the modern world with no law, uh, or, you know, the on, on a grander sense than the modern world. Well, you know what Western does, though? And I, I thought about this a couple of times as I was watching, though. I think Firefly uh, does. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it totally does. I think Firefly sure. does, right? Like, Mal's an interesting character. He's a character who's not, you know... Um, I mean, I would call him a good person, like a good character, but at the same time, um, he's also and and just in his own way. But he's also like an out, clearly an outlaw, and certainly kills people without you know he doesn't like give them fair trial. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he just decides like, all right, you know. Um, but it's not it's not common. I think oftentimes you don't get that. Um, you don't get that. You're right. It tends to be more black and white uh, in especially in older westerns for sure. So is, is, uh, I, which, which makes this unusual. De- definitely unusual, and I'm, I'm excited to see how they. I, I don't. I don't know if I want to see a show that is just like I don't know if I, how excited I am for three seasons of that because, um, you know, you can only <laughs> stretch that so far. I think uh, as interesting an idea as it is, but it is certainly a great uh, setup for for a story. Right. It's it's a good starting place, and I you know. Um... I guess we'll see how we'll see, we'll see where that goes. But I'll tell you that my for my own personal taste, I have a limit. You know, mm-hmm. like um, I've said, and I said this about Game of Thrones, and it, it pissed me off so much in that show where they're like, "Well, you know, being good or being bad is irrelevant. Everyone dies, and it's all you know that sort of just where nothing, literally nothing matters. Morality is irrelevant. Whatever you do doesn't matter. You're going to die. People are going to stab you. You're just going to suddenly perish in an episode. It becomes really hard to care about anything that's going on." The show, I don't, I don't have that feeling. I never had that feeling about it. Um, and I think what's interesting about it is, and I think it's, it really comes down to the simplest, the simple idea of um, the show's not doesn't feel like it's necessarily about good guys and bad guys, but more just like, I don't know, you know, who's the good guy in? I'm trying to think of a just a generic like in 
well, in Mad Men, right? Other good guys and bad guys. I haven't really watched Mad Men, but like, as other good guys and bad guys, it's not really like that. You know, it's about human people who have human thoughts, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're bad, and it's sort of, you know, and and you can still do that and have a character arc without there being necessarily this dichotomy. And I think that what this show is good at, again, to my memory, there's a lot of things I didn't like. I forgot that he was that. Bill Hickok was a marshal. Like I totally forgot about that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, it's been so long. Um, so I, you know, maybe I'm just blowing smoke. But I, I think um, this show is, you know, these they they all certainly have arcs, and you know, the good bad dichotomy. I don't feel like plays in as much. Uh, but I guess we'll see, and maybe it'll become. More well, yeah, certainly, it doesn't uh, even maybe. seem to come into play within these characters. And maybe, you know, not yet. I, I don't know if there will be any kind of moral crisis that goes on with any of these people. There probably will at some point. Um, but they all seem to kind of have, at this point in their lives, a clear understanding of who they are, and kind of what and uh, you know how the how they want to act on the world. Um, right. I do think it's curious that they seem to they seem to have set up uh, as opposed to this, you know, one side, second side, good, bad, whatever dichotomy like you say there's this kind of triumvirate of um of bullock and hickok and al swearingen who we haven't even talked mm-hmm. about yet um yeah we have not which is i think a cool because they all kind of the three of them represent this very fluid sense of right and wrong in their own ways and sure from scene to scene even it's not really clear how because you know the great thing about why why the good bad dichotomy is such a popular storytelling technique is that it makes it very easy to uh get invested in a character right well this character sure yeah this character's bad i don't like this character so i will you know feel a certain way when something happens to this character or the opposite or vice versa so to have these three who you can't as of yet really pin down like um like you know al swearingen's one of his first scenes is him <laughs> stepping on a woman's neck um yeah and that's going to be once a character's done that that's like a hard that's like an uphill battle to get me to like that character it is um it is but then he becomes you know he's not presented as evil and it's not like it's it's not in a way that the show is saying that uh that violence is acceptable or good that you're supposed to be okay with that, or that the show is excusing oh, no. that. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, yeah. But it is the show is basically saying it, it. It presents him after that as a character who, you know, if that scene hadn't happened, you would love this character. He's so cool, you right? Know, he's and and it doesn't um, it doesn't make that you know attractiveness part of kind of the more vile aspect of who he is as a person. But it also doesn't seem like those two are really in direct conflict with each other like he's you know really a two-faced guy they're both they're all one and the same right, it's all right. kind of part of the same uh personality and i'm really curious about where this character is going what kind of person <laughs> he's supposed to be where I, i'm really curious where i'm gonna end up with this character because i don't know yet how i really feel about him well yeah i mean well in one episode of elsewhere engine what could you say <laughs> what can you really say about elsewhere engine? um you know it's funny so it, i when I had just seen the series, uh, whatever, years ago, I, I mapped out in my head. I was like, wow, this arc for Al Swearingen, so interesting. And I had it, like, mapped out by episode. It was so, you know, I, lo- I was so, you know, invested in this. I can't remember any of it. All I remember is it was <laughs> awesome. I don't have any clue. So I'm, like, now I'm watching. And it's funny. I, um, a couple, just maybe a year or two ago, I um, 
I had a friend over and I just wanted to show them the first episode. I was like, oh, we could watch Deadwood. And um, I forgot about this scene, this first scene that we get introduced to elsewhere. And because like, oh, it's it's in you know, this, this character is great. Uh, and then there's just like this really awful, brutal scene. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I forgot that's how this starts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was just like, oh, this is awkward. Um, and then I, I, I didn't watch any more in that period so all i saw was the pilot. so this is the second time i've seen the pilot and the pilot's more recent in my memory uh i completely forget what happens after this so um but yeah you're right and it, what's interesting so there's two things about alice Warren, so we should we should talk about alice Warren. so there's two things that are interesting about him uh first of all ian mcshane already i mean how good is he he's so he's, really, he's, so, <laughs> he's really good he's amazing um you know it's, and it's funny you, you point you said you know it doesn't feel like an evil like good, bad, that kind of thing, and yet when he's, when he first, when he like, you know, he's sort of um, roughhousing, uh, he's, he's roughing uh, Trixie up. Uh, it, he almost looks like a, a villain from a, a silent film. Yeah, he's got like that mustache and like a striped shirt, and he looks like he's about to tie someone to the, like the railroad tracks. It's bizarre, um, <laughs> just in this like one frame where it's the you know the the, sh- the shots tilted up at him, and he's you know he's got the, the foot on her neck, um, and it's um, it's like he definitely seems evil in that moment, but then he does like fifty other things the rest of the episode, you know, and you're trying to figure out what is going on with him. Uh, you know, you start to see these henchmen sort of under him and how their relationship with him and how that works, that di- those dynamics. Um, and then you have this whole other plot line going on with, you know, this this New Yorker <laughs> he's messing with, which, oh my God. I love it. It's so great. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's the thing I got to say. I didn't expect the show to be as funny as it is. I just didn't really oh, know it's... that, know it about that, know about that. Uh, but it is really funny, and I laughed so hard at the scene with that guy, um, yeah, like getting all dressed, uh, like for the oh, first yeah. day at the uh, the gold mine or whatever it is, and he's trying to like he's like right. coughing so that his wife will wake up and see him in his right. in his cowboy outfit, <laughs> right? And she's completely ignoring him. Yeah. Um, that was yeah, really no, fun. that's great, and you know it's. I, I noticed something interesting about this. Uh, so, again, so so the other thing about Elsewhere Ranger, just to go back to that real quick, is um, one thing that's very clear and it's consistent, despite whatever he's doing, whether it's um, you know this this whole situation with um, the New York the, the dude that's what they call him the dude, <laughs> um, this city slicker, right? Um, whether it's with him or whether it's with Trixie or whether it's uh, uh, I forget who is it who who comes in who's who tells him about the the massacre. Uh, each time, the reason he loses his cool or the reason he does something drastic is control. Or or when Tom Driscoll, the, the Irish guy, doesn't follow the plan in terms of the bidding, um, he doesn't have control over the situation and he can't handle not having control over the situation. Like he need it's I don't know if it's a power thing or a control thing, but anybody who messes with the balance of like no 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 no, this is how I said to do it and we're gonna do it this way and if you do something different than this we're gonna have a problem. That's that to me feels like that's him that's his character and and I think that's very important in the broader context of bringing law or any sort of law coming into Deadwood because he gets to basically run the town in a lot of ways 
And now, A, two people just, as you pointed out, Bill Hickok and, and uh, Seth just showed up, right? Seth Bullock just showed up. And that threatens his power. And then, you know, bro- more broadly, if if civilization comes, you know, to, to Deadwood, if the, the government expands that way or whatever, and it becomes part of the Dakotas or whatever it is the, the reporter says, then, you know, that, that, it, that threatens his livelihood. It threatens his, the way he runs everything. Um, so I think that that's, it sets up an interesting conflict for him, at least in terms of whatever the, what they've what they've mentioned so far, for sure. Well, this is why this is why I found the character so relatable, actually. Um, oh God! Because, well, no, this only this instance because um, whenever I watch uh, something like this that takes place in this time period, it gives me such powerful anxiety because I just like I feel like I would last five seconds in this world. I can't deal with this world. <laughs> because if you're existing in a world where if you just if you say the wrong thing, someone will just shoot you in the face because they can, uh, that's terrifying. Right. It's terrifying to me. Yeah. Because um I like I wouldn't I wouldn't even be able to I wouldn't talk. But of course if you maybe if you are not talking to the wrong person, that'll be the wrong thing to do. Right. Because of the Of course, right. You look at them funny. Yeah, I mean it, <laughs> the just the every everything in this world is so volatile and that could just go off at any given second. Um, I really, I mean, obviously I don't relate to his actions <laughs> specifically, right, sure. but I relate to kind of the desire for, to, to have some measure of control over that. And I think all three of the, the you know, like I said, these uh, three characters, three main characters, it seems, uh, they all seem to be, that, that's what they seem to have in common, is a desire to keep, if not, you know, law, then order. To have some right. measure of of some form, exactly it, to make sure because it's it's to no one's benefit if Deadwood erupts, you know, into complete mob violence or whatever. If it, or if or if the town right. is on fire, no one, you know, and whatever your motivations are. Well, then no one makes money. Exactly. No one, I mean, you know, for yeah. for Swear Engine, that seems to be it, right? It's like, um, <laughs> which was interesting in his scene where he explains that uh, he's upset that people are riding off to find this potentially alive child because it means that nobody's drinking or gambling. Right. <laughs> um, and he said what's it becomes this um it's like money and uh like morality is its own currency basically like he's willing right. to he's he's willing to enough to say, you know, I I will spend uh says like I'll spend $50 per Indian head that people bring back right. but tomorrow. <laughs> you know, but tomorrow, yeah, right. drink tonight. He wants to make sure they stay and spend money. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so he's like, "I'll look." I'll well, and also up. in the morning, I mean, yeah. he doesn't make any money during the day. Exactly. Right? Like, yeah. So. so you can all go do that during the day. And he's not saying that, right. like, he's not the kind of character who just—he's not the amoral guy who's like, "Oh, who cares about some kid?" Like that. Like that's the thing the bad guy would say. Um, he's like, "I, right. I only care about making money." He's like, "I know." It's like I get it. You want to go out and uh, do what's right, but. I also like need to make money, so please do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it, I mean, a, it, yeah. it, clearly he's he gives a sort of sarc- not a sarcastic, but a half-hearted. Um, oh yeah, you know that was does the cross. That you know. was the funniest moment of the episode where he says it like in the middle of explaining, you know, first rounds on me, and then half off whatever. <laughs> he's like, oh, and right, right, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's dark. It's it was, dark. but it was really funny. Um, one thing to keep an eye again, not to this. I'll, I'm, I'm always going to be as vague as possible <laughs> if I can. Um, but one one character I think to keep an eye on because I think uh, she often gets swept. She doesn't get talked about. Like I mean, I've talked to people about Deadwood and talked, uh, you know, seen discussions and and things about uh, the show. Um, but 
this one character who is uh, she's she's only in a brief moment in this episode, but she's someone to keep an eye out for. Um, Jewel, who talks to Trixie in um, just briefly oh. when she I think okay I think um, she I don't is she the one who gives or she I think uh, Trixie asked for the gun from her. Or ask for a new gun from her. Yeah. And then someone else gives her the gun instead. I think, right? Is that what happens? Yeah, yeah. Right. So so Jewel is the name of the character, um, but the actual like actor's name is Jerry Jewel. Uh and she's fantastic. She's absolutely fantastic. Um and I I I absolutely I remember I remember really again, I don't remember why, but I remember really liking her character and I think she's just she's a good she's a really good actor and I think she really her interactions with other characters, I'll be as vague as possible. Other characters are very snappy and quick and she's you know, she she gives the you know, because she has a disability, she sort of is you know, gets treated that way you know gets treated like she has a disability and people don't really take her seriously but she clearly has a lot more going on than people realize and she's fully aware of everything that goes on in this in this place and so i always find her character interesting because she offers a very different perspective on this world and the other thing i want to just just more broadly mention is you know i had forgotten that saul um seth's friend uh is jewish yeah. And Jewel has a disability, and so there's all these characters with these interesting, like, sort of minority perspectives that we never get in westerns ever. <laughs> well, although I mean, <laughs> I will say, just from the perspective that I have, I am not super excited about whatever they're about to do with this Chinese character. I just have a <laughs> bad vibe. <sighs> I gotta say, I'm not, you know, and I don't know. Maybe this will be like a really great, uh, yeah, interesting, uh, kind of not super stereotypical character, but uh, he doesn't even get to say anything. I don't even think you see his face in this episode. He just gets called, called the word I'm, I don't think I can say a couple times. No, um, yeah, there's a lot we can't say from this show. There's just, a lot. We'll have to we put had that to, out there. We had to make absolutely sure that the name of our podcast wasn't a slur. We, we had to like... Right, which hasn't showed sure. up yet. No, yeah, I was... Uh, yeah. I'm excited for that to finally get dropped. Yeah, um, yeah, Wu. Uh, Wu is a character. Uh, listen, like any other character on the show, um, that's all I'll say. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, you know, you know, if you, before you had met Saul, if you were like, you know, oh, there's a Jewish character on the show, I wonder how they're going to do that. Like, what about Saul is particular? You know, it's, I, I don't know. There's nothing really. Wu is a character. <laughs> and he does, he is a functioning character. Like, he doesn't, he's not just in the background. He's, like I said, there are no real side characters. Um, so something that's really interesting, and I wanted to just talk about the tactical aspect of things. Uh, and uh, before we do that, I just want to mention, I wanted to get back to, and this this is sort of technical, so we can sort of use that as a segue, but uh, Alma Garrett is an interesting character because she's very disinterested in whatever her husband's doing and her husband has spent whatever the $20,000 they brought there. Um, and he seems like kind of an idiot and she seems to be aware of this. Um, she also keeps taking, and I, by the way, this took me forever to figure out what she was doing. Uh, I think it's laudanum, which is an opiate Hmm. is very common at the, at the time. Uh, and so she's just basically a drug addict. Um, and she uses it to just zonk out. Uh, but I really find it interesting how they frame a lot of... She's constantly looking out a window, right? 
And I think it's interesting that they frame her perspective on the, the town as sort of this disinterested remove, you know, point of remove. And it's not until they make sure they have a shot right at the end where she's very, she's shocked by what she sees when um, Seth and, and, uh, and Bill shoot this guy. And I think a couple things happen. Her interest is suddenly piqued because she's like, oh, so, you know, this isn't just some, you know, gross town that I'm in. Um, these are characters who are very different than her husband. So that's an interesting thing for her. She's like, oh, these are new people. And uh, she's also, it suddenly becomes real for her. Like, like bullets can go through windows, bullets, you know, like this is not a safe place. I am not in a safe place. And staying in this room perhaps is safe for now, but it, you know, we are not in the, you know, and it's sort of this understanding. It's very, it's very interesting how, because, because of how they're framing these, these shots uh, through the window that we get this, this interesting perspective, I think. Well, her costume design too, I think uh, um, really sets her apart. She's in and this, which, uh, the first time we, but different her, than everybody else, this, you know, very, st- yeah, a very stark red, like bright red. Everyone else is in these very traditional Western, like browns and kind of and grays and off whites. Um, yeah, but so she, the first time she's on screen, it's just like, okay, this, wow, this is completely separate from anything else we've seen so far. This character, uh, and then, like you say, the, uh, I have that written down too. Her kind of mm. always looking out windows, always observing from afar, rather than taking part and keeping herself separate, and and also having this mysterious. Uh, drug addiction, apparently. Uh, definitely a, a curious character. Um, I get the feeling that... Right, right, know, right. The, 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 this episode spends more time with her husband. I get the feeling that in the future, uh, she will become a little more significant, if only because I can't imagine <laughs> they can draw too much more out of the this guy being just a complete dope to everyone around him. Right, 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 right. Because, I, I mean, he is certainly funny what we see of him, um, but... Uh, Nothing he does in this episode is as intriguing as uh, his wife putting that mysterious drug into her drinks. Um, mm. And I just don't... There doesn't seem to be a lot of blood in the stone of uh, this guy's a real doofus. So... <laughs> we'll see. Well, you know, I love I, I, I love this character, too, because like, I love how he comes back to the apartment or wherever they are, the hotel room. And, um, you know, he wants to show his... you know show his wife how cool he is with this stupid handshake thing. <laughs> um, you know, like, he's just an idiot. <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> and I think... I think it feels like we're meant to understand that characters... Even characters who understand how this world works, you know, have a may have a shorter lifespan than, uh, than other people. So sh- certainly someone who doesn't seem to... You know, either they leave or they die or they... Like, it seems to be foreshadowing that this is not the kind of situation. I mean, it, it could be possible that they want to bleed him dry from of whatever money he has left, if he can get more people, or... I don't know. It's not really clear, but it, they certainly don't make him feel like a part of the the this town. Like, he could blend... Like, Seth shows up, and you're like, you know what? He might be able to find a, a niche in this society. This guy, not so much. <laughs> it doesn't feel like it. I definitely get that impression. Well, he's another great example of a... Um... A very different take on a Western trope because he's usually, uh, I think we're kind of familiar with the guy who comes into this situation. He's like, oh well, I, I have, <laughs> I have never, uh, in, uh, in back in New York they would never tolerate, uh, you know, that kind of guy. Right, right, right. Um, <laughs> very blustery and high society. Right. Uh, but that guy is usually so uh, he rejects 
the Old West uh, norms. Whereas, you know, uh, this guy seems really uh, the dude. He seems kind of, like, charmed by it. As uh, right. as uh, confused as he initially is, he's, like, excited to be seen as uh, as one of these people and to participate in their culture. Like right. He's, like he gets to hang out with the cool kids or something. Um so that's, that's exactly what it felt like. It sounded like it felt like he was showing them, like he was showing her a secret handshake he learned. You know, I mean, like, yeah, exactly. You're, what are you six? You know, <laughs> um, and she's like, okay. <laughs> you know? uh, and I love how when he shows up, um, you know, he's getting all dressed. It's his whole thing, and he comes out, and you know, like the real adults, you know, ride by in their horses after having saved this little girl. You know, they're dirty. They assume it looks like they get him dirty too, um, <laughs> and. You know, it's just the contrast is absolutely uh, evident between them. Um, so, yeah, so I want to talk a little bit about the, the technical aspect uh, of the show. So this whole, not to ruin the magic, but um, what's what's really cool about the show is that because it's, the show really just takes place in, in Deadwood, I would, um, I think it's, it's fair to say. I'm trying to remember. I, I'm, I feel, I think it just takes place in Deadwood. And so... Um, it's confined to a single space. Uh, now there's different locations within this area, but um, but it is it, they built this town. This is a real town. They like it's not a set. They built in the middle of nowhere this whole little place for them to like interact and and work and live. And um, it's so interesting to see. Like it feels like a real place. It feels like more real than anything than that you know that you usually see in Game of Thrones or any of these shows. And I was just wondering how you felt about that. Or at least to me anyway. I don't know about you. Oh, definitely, definitely. As I mean, especially compared to some of the uh just uh god. I mean, it's it's over a <laughs> decade later on Game of Thrones and these Right. There are still so many places that you're just like that that wouldn't pass in a dinner theater set. That's so obviously <laughs> a set. It, what a you know, God, no, nothing against the um, production designers on Game of Thrones. Obviously, I'm sure they're very qualified professionals and they do a great job in so many locations. <laughs> um, well, some no, locations and, and the other thing is they have to work so hard. I mean, can you imagine being on that show as a as a production designer? Oh God, it's like a thousand locations. Yeah, and you have to make it up. Because oh yeah, I mean yeah, I, I, they probably had some real world reference for Deadwood. By the way, I do want to mention. Um, I did not know until after watching this episode that this is all based on real life. <laughs> this really happened. Yeah, um, no, it's actually it's even cooler than that. Like specific arcs happened. It's it's not all of it, but a lot of it. It's like yeah. Wait, because I have in my notes like oh, it's interesting that they use Wild Bill Hickok, who's like a name I know from history, but like um and they, but like that everyone else is fictional. But no, everyone else is real too. Nope. <laughs> Yes, Seth Bullock. And I, have, did you see a picture of what Seth Bullock looked oh like? Oh my God! His Wikip- Please, if you're listening to this, go to the Wikipedia page for the real Seth Bullock. I can't. It's unbelievable. His mustache his, is unreal. It's extraordinary. I can't. They had to tone it down for oh, television. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, you have you have you know Timothy Oliphant has a pretty face, and like you know you're not gonna cover it up with a giant you know mustache. And plus, Bill has the clearly has the. Um, uh, has the monopoly on mustaches in the show. <laughs> there's there's no doubt about it. Although although, um what's his name? Uh A. W. Merrick. Merrick. That's why I don't remember the first the first initials. Merrick, uh played by Jeffrey Jones, uh from, you know, Ferris Bueller's Day Off and of criminal fame. Um, but let's not get into that. Uh he is a um he's got a magnificent mustache as well that connects, you know, it's that is it a hand it's not a handlebar. What is that? 
his huge mustache that sort of connects to his face. Oh, yeah. There's I don't even a know what uh, called. God, yeah. There's a name for that. I don't remember. Yeah, but anyway, he's uh, he's he he and and Bill Hickok probably have the the monopoly on that. But yeah, this is all based on on reality. And what's really cool is that they can set it. They can play with timelines a bit because how long it takes for things to happen, certainly. But you know, real things. You know, if, if this Deadwood, where Deadwood is now, is is I think South Dakota, I believe, and uh, historically, like that's where it was, and then that became South Dakota. So we know that at some point, whether or not it'll happen in the course of the show, that became part of the United States, and so that's always sort of a looming thought, just because we know, you know, historical reality, we know what's going to happen eventually to this town. Um, that that's always something that you know all these characters. So it's this existential threat, you know, to their very way of life, um, and it's why a lot of people went west, you know, to get away from this stuff. So, well, it's, I, also it's, just to jump back to the production design, it's really cool yeah. that um, the town, like you say, they built the just the town as a set. Uh, yeah. I like that. As of now, it seems to like the town is still being built as the, as the story is unfolding. Um, yeah. Especially as um, they're riding into town, people are still putting stuff up and building their shops and kind of. It's really interesting to uh, Deadwood feels like a very established place based on the characters who we meet who have lived here. Um, but really, it's just based on them as an actual physical location. It is still under construction. A lot of it. Um, and that's a really right, cool right, idea right. from a production design standpoint, at least. It's really cool, and it, it's kind of cool in, uh, throughout the show. Um, it's certainly a recurring theme, just, you know, you can build story based on that. You know, you build this kind of building here, and it's let's say you build, I don't know, like a hospital or something. Then, like, now you can do a story about a hospital, because now you have a hospital in the town. How does that affect what goes on? Um, and there's a lot of that in this um, Well, it also makes this it, show just... It makes it feel less like a set, you know? At least for now. Oh yeah, because you know, ironically, kind of seeing the um, the bones of these locations, it makes it feel realer. Because I think if you just walked into Deadwood in this episode and it was already built, um, and it was just like, okay, everything is already established, that makes it feel less real. I think because it feels like, okay, obviously, you know, this is a place that they built for the show to exist. Um, but to have it all like being kind right, of right, built right, up right. around the characters makes it feel realer because you're kind of experiencing. You're actually experiencing the construction of it, as opposed to um, characters who just already live in a constructed setting. It's it's right. something. It's kind. Of, you're getting a greater sense of. Um, you're really. I mean, you're getting a greater sense of of place, really, because you're you're seeing. You're literally experiencing the place being created in front of you. Right, and it's you know. Well, I mean, what are the two characters that we follow into the city? Or you know, what are they doing? They're selling hardware, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, it's it's literally build the city, you know, and uh, that's definitely it feels like a theme. And you know, as these things, you know, these threats to people who were already there and their control, and you know, what is that going to mean if there's you know new buildings or new people, and what does that what does that do? I think that that control and freedom and what. And and it's really interesting too, you know. Like, uh, I'm trying to think what's. Well, there's a whole, you know, it's uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia episode about, you know, they try and have this, they try and make their bar like a zone where you can just, you know, you're free to do whatever you want. And at first, they think it's really cool, but then you know, a lot of a couple of other characters take it way too far, and uh, they go, you know what? We need some rules. We need some like laws because this is way way too much. But that line between, you know 
yeah, we can do whatever we want. And then someone goes way too far. It's like, well, maybe this, you know, maybe that's not great. Maybe we do need a little bit of law and order. And, and it's this back and forth, I think. And I think the show deals with that, even just in this first episode. Um, and it's, it, I only really thought about this after the fact because, you know, I was having discussions with people about it. Um, so it's really interesting to sort of look at it through that lens. And I don't know how it's going to play out uh, in the over the course of the series. But I think that that looming threat of civilization is always there. Um, yeah. So, uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to really quickly say another great uh, way of establishing Deadwood as a very uh, real location is just uh, is how crowded it is. I'm thinking specifically of the scene where oh, yeah. where uh, Bullock and um, and uh, Star are like first selling their wares, and there's just people everywhere. Uh, and this is something that. <laughs> kind of sings Game of Thrones a lot of the time that we talk about, where you're walking through these sometimes beautiful locations, but no one is there except for the main characters. <laughs> right, so it right, doesn't, right, it right. makes it feel like not a real place because there's nothing else going on except what's been, what's been scripted to happen. Uh, there's just no one else there. Uh, so to have, you know, obviously everyone... Right, right. No, no, you're, I was thinking about that exact thing, actually. Yeah, so everyone in this specific scene, for the most part, uh, is focused on what the main characters are doing. Uh, but just the fact that the street itself is so crowded with people uh, really helps to. Uh, I don't. I, God, I I hate when I do this, but a, a sta- I, I hate when I <laughs> feel like I use a word ten times in five minutes. Uh, but it helps to establish <laughs> whatever you know what I mean. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're right. You know, it does. It feels more lived in. I think it, another way you get that is right in the beginning when they all are moving in and unpacking their stuff. It's the, the, the streets just crowded with people, just random people from different places. Um, and I think that's there's there's some there's some there's definitely merit in that and making it feel like a real place. Because I was I was actually thinking about that at some point. I was like, wow, there's a lot of people in this town. This is not a tiny town. Um, but every time there's that wave, and again, every time there's that wave of people, you know, like Swearingen, who seems to have dominion over a lot of what goes on in this town is uh you know he has to sort of scope out the people who are coming in and what they may or may not be bringing to the table so that's that's also an interesting angle um now i don't want to get into like every single character uh i just want to bring up one or two points of things that i i quite enjoyed um i love i love the scene so when driscoll comes in to collect the six thousand that he thinks he's owed for this deal but he had done the wrong thing with the uh you know, with the bidding. Yeah. The way Swearingen handles this is so good. He's terrifying. Amy McShane is terrifying in this scene. Because at first he's like, no, 14,000 is what we agreed on. We are not, do- I'm not, not doing the 20,000, which you weren't supposed to do. And you also, by the way, almost ruined the entire thing. <laughs> um, and at first he's willing to give him the 14,000, whatever, the six. 30% of 14,000. Oh yeah. That's something I want to say too. Everyone in the show does math in their head really fast. Oh um, yeah. Well, he, this guy specifically is like he's just like that's uh 4200. Like, wow. Yeah, it was I that's good. Could, I would have needed to write it down at least. <laughs> I would have had to think about that for a second. That's that's pretty good. But yeah, he just whips that out. Um but when he realizes he lose he completely lost uh Swearingen somewhere in there and he just goes, you know, he's like he's like, "All right, well, what do you want? like like how, you know, how much are you how, like how much do I get?" and because he's just given up trying to request anything. Spurgeon's like, well, how much do you think you should get? (laughs) (laughs) He just feels like he's about to explode and, like, jump across the table and kill him. It's so unnerving. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, And finally, he settles for, what, $20? And 
you know, some time in the brothel. Oh my god. How does he go from $6,000 to that? <laughs> Total, it's insane. Um, and I love, I love um, Farnham's character. He's just such a kiss-ass. He's so awful. Such a scummy human being. Um, <laughs> who just like acquiesces to whatever Swearingen wants. Um, so yeah, I really, I really liked that, that moment there. I had forgotten about Driscoll, but of course he, he dies right in this episode. So that would be why, but I love their, their back and forth. And I think it really establishes this, this, um, this character. One thing I think is interesting, uh, just to note before we, uh, uh move into the end of this. Um, so I forgot, I forget now I'm forgetting the character's name. Um, his the guy who kills Driscoll, one of uh, he he's an interesting character, but he's I don't, I'm forgetting his name now. But um, he kills Driscoll uh, at Swearingen's request. But when he's requested to to kill him, when he says, you know, you should you have you have to deal with with Tom Driscoll, um, he's surprised, or he's like, really, like we're gonna do that? It's not like I've never been asked to kill anyone before, but more, you know. It's not something we do all the time for everybody and every single person who ever gets in our way, you know. Mm. And I think that that's a distinction that's really important in this um, this world versus Game of Thrones, where like people just die all the time, uh, where it, you know there is there's weight to people's deaths, and I think that it clearly has meaning in the context of the story, depending on who the character knows and whoever's dying. It's not going to just be swept under the rug. Um, yeah, but they'd also, they also don't linger on the actual death itself, right? Like, um, they do not, they don't, you know, like I, I, I they don't, don't even rem- show the murder here. Yeah, I don't even remember. I don't, I think I said this earlier in the episode. I might not have when Tom Driscoll dies, it's just one stab and we don't even see it. And I actually noted that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like, especially compared to game of Thrones and you know, the hanging scene, I mean, you know, obviously this is long before Game of Thrones, but th- I, I imagined the hanging scene at the opening of the episode as almost a... <laughs> in my head, it became a response to the scene in this previous season with uh, the hanging, with Jon Snow hanging the, uh, right, the right, four right. traitors, which goes on forever as they as they choke to death. Right. And, um, and uh, Bullock just, just... It goes on for a while here, too. I mean, for the but there's nothing much more for... Well, but he stops it, right? He just yanks him down and cracks his neck. He does. Like, all right. You know, he you, does, yeah. the, the show doesn't isn't uh it isn't as uh obsessed with kind of the gruesome details of death as right. uh, Cer- many other shows are certainly as game of thrones is uh so death can have weight without without that added well, like, so what shock did you make value. of this scene the first scene that we see a death aside from that which is uh after trixie shoots the guy with the the, the tiny gun that was um that's right i forgot about that um that was gruesome as hell. There is, yeah, there is certainly a very gruesome uh, moment with the <laughs> sticking the with worm tongue. Wait, what? Is that worm really? Tongue. Oh my god! Wow. Yeah. Okay, Brad. Yeah. Brad Dourif, right? I know, right? Huh? Yeah. All right. <laughs> it's a little disguised by makeup. In a little unnerving. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, but so that was definitely gruesome i guess but we also don't see them we don't see the moment of violence which i think is significant we don't actually see him being true. shot we just see the aftermath true, and true. when we it, it does linger on his death but it's almost like first of all it pulls Well, that moment is so it's tragic yeah it, well it pulls back right it's, he's, it's a wide shot and he's just in the corner so it's focusing on he's in the corner and they all and they all are just because they basically the doctors indicated to them or they've they've gotten the idea that he's dead he's, yeah he doesn't realize he's dead, but he's dead. And so they just sit there and wait for it to happen. And it's like, 
it's harsh, man. Like mm-hmm. the guy doesn't realize he's like, is it bad? <laughs> and then you know, seconds later, he's dead. Um, and even the doctor's like, how did he even do that? And I almost feel like the writers were like, could this happen? If that did yeah. happen, would the doctor be kind of surprised that this happened? <laughs> yeah. Um, by the way, this was David Milch wrote, who created Deadwood, wrote the first episode. Um, but yeah, but then he sticks that drill all the way through the brain. Um, yeah, very. The doctor seems to be. But you know what I like about this scene is it. Uh, each of these scenes are all very important in setting up these characters, and I find it interesting that they chose to set him up from almost a science. He's almost interested in the scientific you know, exploration of, you know, anatomy and that kind of thing. It seems like that he's almost more interested in that than he is in the fact that somebody died. Um, that said, he immediately takes in the girl when she shows up at his at his place. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. It, he's definitely an interesting character from what we've seen of him so far. Oh, he also has a mustache, good mustache. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you about, so there's so much, Swearingen, Swearingen could take up an entire podcast, but I just want to ask you about him in the context of this last scene. What do you think of this last scene? The, oh, so it's with, with uh, him and Trixie, right? Yeah, with him and Trixie. Yeah, this was uh, definitely curious, given their earlier scene that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Their relate. Yeah, I don't know if I I don't know if I know enough about their relationship yet to really authoritatively talk about this scene. Certainly, you know, just knowing mm-hmm. what I know, it has a definite like domestic abuse uh, ring to it. It's kind of hard not sure. to. Uh, to uh, get that implication with, uh, you know, very tragic element of domestic abuse is that someone will, you know, go back, keep going back to the abuser, right? Um, mm. Despite what that person is doing to them, uh, it's just the way that, uh, you know, that unfortunately often happens. Uh, so that I definitely got that impression from it. But on the other hand, I feel like I don't know these characters well enough to really... I, I don't have enough of an understanding of their relationship to really say whether or not that's what's going on. It's all I can really assume at this point, but uh, I get the feeling that it's a little more, there is something more complicated happening between these two uh, than just that, although I I think it's hard to argue with that being an element at this point. Well, man, that was so deep. I was just when I asked about uh, Ian McShane's onesie. (laughs) 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 No, (laughs) So I don't mean to minimize what all the rest of it. No, no, I think that's actually um, very interesting. And I actually don't remember the exact nature of the relationship at this point in the story or what's what's going on here. So um, I'm actually where you are. Uh, my only thing that I find really interesting about this scene is how unsure they both seem to be about what might happen in this moment. Like, she gets a gun, perhaps to do, to shoot him or... It's not clear why she gets the gun in the first place. Maybe to defend herself. Yeah, for protection. And I he, assume. right? Well, and he, well, right for protection. But then it's also like, well, maybe you know, if he, she's done with him, she could make an attempt to, you know, to kill him. Um, and yet he, and he's not sure that that's not exactly what she's going to do because he knows she's coming to his room. He knows it's her. It's not some other random person. Uh, and he gets his gun out just before she comes in and hides it under the blanket. And I think that it, I just find it so fascinating that they're both fully armed <laughs> before the scene starts. And, you know, and the way it goes down, of course, she puts her gun on the desk and they sort of get into bed together. And then the, the scene ends, like the moment ends and you're supposed to, I don't know what you're supposed to get out of this, but you're, like the, you're certainly supposed to be processing whatever just happened. Like, what? 
is the nature of this relationship in any way, shape, yeah, or form. Yeah, it becomes this implication that there is a more... Um, the uh, the dynamic between them psychologically is not necessarily one of... Uh, where uh, Swearingen is completely dominant. It definitely seems like there is a more... Like I said, a more mm. complicated kind of interplay going on uh, than initially it initially appears because I although she does kind of in giving up her gun there is an element of uh, submission to that I guess sure right? certainly yeah, yeah. Uh, and her, and he doesn't give up his gun certainly um, that we see at least but uh, well she doesn't know he has it either though that's true well exactly but exactly yeah um, he's hiding it still he doesn't like yeah cause, mm. well because she's hiding her gun too right that's the thing she um, he has forbid her from getting a gun right he takes it away but she gets another one anyway. And I feel like right. this is her saying, like, look, um, she puts the gun on the nightstand or the desk or whatever, and she says, I'm not going to shoot you, um, but I need you to understand that, like, if... S- I would shoot you. <laughs> yeah, but, like, yeah, like, I would. <laughs> and um, I'm going to keep this gun because, you know, like, if someone's going to beat me up, I'm going to shoot them, basically. So definitely, right. while there is kind of the submission of putting the gun away... Uh, she's literally like, you know, she's not throwing it out the window. She's putting it on the nightstand. She might as well be pointing it at him, like, "Watch yourself," because you right. know, <laughs> you you get. It. I'm letting. Or you... I'll just get another one. Exactly. Or I'll, you know, any number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And 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 the fact that he takes out a gun is significant because that means, you know, it could be oh, the Deadwood world, everyone is dangerous. But I mean, you wouldn't do that with Alma Garrett or like all these other characters, at least as far as we know, right? So that means that he knows about something about her that she might be the kind of person who would try and kill him, you know? And I think that's also significant in that context. Yeah, definitely. I mean, his react... he, Like you say, he seems a little perplexed about what's going on. He doesn't seem yeah, like, like... He doesn't have this expression of, like, a high, you know, I won. Um, he definitely seems a little more, uh, like, almost off-put by what's happening. Yeah. Um, or, like, relieved, or, like, what? Yeah, exactly. You know, like... And he knows... And that also means he knows what he did earlier. Is going to have ramifications. Not that he feels bad or whatever, but that it's like he would probably say, like, if I were her, I might kill me. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take my gun out. You know, I don't know. Um, or he goes, you know, maybe he's thinking, you know, she did kill someone earlier today. <laughs> you know, right? So she's clearly capable of this. Uh, someone who, you know, beat her up, which is exactly what you know he did. Not perhaps to the same extent, but certainly similar. So I think that that's a an interesting point. Um, I just want to say that. Oh yeah, I did want to say oh, quickly. Also, it, it it made me think back to their initial interaction. Um, he is obviously abusive to her, but immediately before that happens, he is protective of her. Right? He says yeah. to uh, his associate, "Make sure that uh, nobody knows that she shot him. Like, keep right. her out of it." Uh, and what she and he says to her, like, when this happened, you should have just come to my office. You should have just told me instead of taking it into your own hands. Um, right. and, I, and what ha- and you know what happens immediately after happens, and there is kind of a. Um, a well, it's uh, not clear if he was protecting himself with that though, because if he finds out, you know, you don't want to go to a place where you know that's prostitutes true. might kill you. You know. Yeah, I mean that that's certainly true, um, but I think that there's also the element of like if he thought that she was trouble, he could have just like you know, thrown her under the bus, right? Like, hey, look, you shot someone. Certainly. It's not, you're not my problem anymore. Um, he has a greater interest Turned in her. Turned her out or something. Yeah, and, and you, what you, we yeah. see later in the episode is that no one is interested in her uh, because she has this, uh, you know, bruised up face. Um, so she is obviously... But he still is. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, she... Everything we've seen about this character before that is that he is motivated by uh, money, 
right? And here, you know, she's of no monetary value to him, right, at, at this moment. She's not right. making any at money. She sure. refuses the money of the guy who just wants to talk to her. Um, right. And he sees this happen, and he lets it go. So he clearly has a greater interest. He, he Money seems to motivate him in, like, a callous way. Uh but not right. you know not entirely like we talked about earlier he is willing to it's not it that he doesn't care like about power. whatever this you know child left victim of this massacre it's that he cares that uh it doesn't interfere with his the search for her doesn't interfere with uh with his profit um so uh, this is his primary character trait at this point but when it comes to her he is willing to like you know if not let it slide it seems he has a more you know, I, I don't know if I can call it like forgiving, especially considering that he is uh, really violent towards her earlier in the episode. But like, I, I, yeah, it's hard to say at this point. There is definitely something going on between between them that is a little really complicated and interesting with regard to both of their characters. She is the only one where like money and profit aren't the primary motivator for his relationship, right? Yeah, 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 for sure. Uh, everything yeah. else is like, he relates to everything through money, essentially, except for her, for some reason. For some reason, right. Which, you know, maybe there's some level of affection there, then. Yeah. Um. So, it, despite how it's being exhibited, certainly. Um. So, yeah, by the way, the, the woman, the, the guy she's talking to, who just wants to hear what she has to say, or offers that, um, Ellsworth, interesting character, Uh. but what's really interesting about it is uh, that uh, actor is Jim Beaver, who is also a writer for RogerEbert.com. Oh, our huh. uh, small world. Yeah, yeah. I, I was I'm pretty sure Jim Beaver is a writer for for RogerEbert.com, and I remember looking at the list of like people who work for the the, the site, and I was like, Jim Beaver writes for RogerEbert.com. What? <laughs> it's bizarre. Um, and he often plays like, I don't know. The last time I saw him a little bit later on. Uh, the Mentalist, I think he played like a rancher or something. So he keeps plays characters like this um, fairly frequently. But, um, but in any case, so you know, like I said, there are no side characters. He, you know, all characters have have purpose and value in this in this show. It's very interesting. Um, but anyway, so I think that uh, that about sums up. So that's your your, your introduction to Deadwood. It's uh, it's something, it's something, and and definitely is. It's got that comic element that I think makes it almost a comedy in a lot of ways. You know. Um, while also being clearly a very serious drama. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly uh, very excited to for uh, to continue watching. I guess. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, so you know, I'm kind of hoping. I don't know if the audience knows this. Um, uh, I've been hoping secretly, and I don't know if I mentioned this in the in the Game of Thrones finale podcast. Uh, we certainly talked long enough. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm I was I've been hoping that Josh will hate the show because it'll give us something <laughs> to talk about. Um. <laughs> But uh, so far, it seems to be okay. So we'll see how we'll see how it goes. Uh, one last thing I just wanted to mention about this episode—just fun facts. Uh, Walter Hill directed it. Yes. Oh my um, god, I can't believe I didn't mention that. That's like my first note. Director of The Warriors. Yeah, uh, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, you know, big, and a bunch uh, of other stuff. But I just find alien, it hilarious that the he... Alien franchise. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Right, he's right, also right. A, he's listed as a consulting producer too, which is curious. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um. Yeah, so I thought that was just an interesting sort of like weird little side note. And there's a lot of interesting directors who are some from Game of Thrones uh, and other things and uh, yeah, some I noticed from just random places. Next week is directed by Davis Guggenheim? Y- yes, do, do you know Davis Guggenheim? Um, well, I know his like documentaries, so it's a little uh Yeah, like that guy. It's that guy. Yeah, it's a strange uh <laughs> 
Straight. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I don't know who says fiction. Obviously, you know, documentarians, uh, uh, their skills uh, are not exclusive to that form. I mean, you know, Werner Herzog obviously dabbles in both. Um, but sure. I didn't know that Davis Guggenheim did uh, any form of fiction filmmaking whatsoever. So, <laughs> and it's it's interesting. He's he's directed a couple episodes this season. And it's oh. interesting because uh, he didn't really do much else um, that was narrative, except you know, it was mostly documentaries that he focused on, um, from what I could tell. But it's interesting that in this case there was in fact a um, uh, he, he directed episodes of Deadwood. Who knew? <laughs> um, we've also got later on in the season, we have Alan Taylor from uh, yeah. from Game of Thrones. Uh, there's Tim Van Patten at some point. Uh, and then just a slew of other directors who have worked on HBO shows. And, and just it's a, an interesting mix of people. So I'm excited to get into that uh, and to see the parallels. Because the other thing is Game of Thrones does like pairs like. You know, one director will direct two episodes, and then the next two episodes will be a different director, etc. And Deadwood doesn't do that at all. It's just random. Um, so, yeah, I'm excited to see where it goes. And uh, next week is... what? What's what's next week's episode? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> um, deep, deep water. Yeah, you don't know this. Usually you have that right on the tip of your... Deep water. We're going to get into deep water, and uh, I'm not even going to read the synopsis because I don't want to know. I don't remember what happens. Um, <laughs> deep water sounds like somebody's going to get in trouble. That's my guess. <laughs> All right, so uh, thank you for joining me for this uh, this inaugural episode of Hoopleheads, and um, we have been your Hooplehead hosts, uh, <laughs> Josh and Soren. Uh, please join us next week for Deep Water. 